<laughs> That's good to be back. Thanks. Um, it's always good to come back. It's always good to come to a place where you know who the people are. Sometimes you go out on weekends and speak and you never know what you're going to get. I know what I'm going to get here. It's always, it's, it's, always, it's always good. I feel like this is home in lots of ways. So, so thanks, for, thanks for having me. I, it's the time of the year when, you, when we cross the threshold from one year to another where we tend to reflect on what's happened, isn't it? The, the TV shows, the magazines, everybody talks about the highlights of the last year. And we reflect on what's been and, and we think about what can be. And you guys have been through a lot in the last months and year. You've, you've, you've gone through some changes and transitions and there are probably some things that you're reminded of uh, at this time of the year. And there's some things that you think about in the future. Well, I don't want to just go back, I don't want to go back just a, a month or a, a year. I want you to think back over the course of your life, and I want to, want to ask you a question. When you look back on what you've done and what you have been, have there ever been critical moments where you could have said something or done something or acted in some kind of way, but you didn't? And you never got the opportunity to do that again. And you thought to yourself, what if? What if I had responded to that situation, if I'd acted in that situation in, in some different way? I, I really want you to think about that this morning because I'm going to tell you a story. Well, actually, it's a story in the middle of some stories, but it's the last story we get to that's the one that prompts all of pretty much what I, what I, what I want to say to you. It's Found over in Matthew chapter 14, if you want to just kind of follow along with me over there, I'm going to be selecting some verses from that. But I really want you to think about what you could have done, what you might have said, how you might have acted, and let that gear you up to think, when that happens again, am I going to be the same person or could I act a, a little differently? Well, Jesus and his followers, his disciples, as we call them, we're trying to find some way to get away from the press of the crowds. He had just gotten word, Jesus had just gotten word that his cousin, John the baptizer, had been killed, executed, beheaded by Herod. The disciples of John had claimed his body and then they had sent some of their emissaries on to give Jesus the word that John was dead. Now John's purpose was to get the way ready for Jesus. Um, and so it was kind of ominous to see how the culture had responded to John. But the crowds were pressing on Jesus more and more, and it, it really didn't give him much opportunity to be able to press the grief. You ever been in a situation like that? You need to process some feelings, but there's just so much has to be done, and there's so many demands around you that you can't, can't pull that off. And I think Jesus thought if he could just get away to some private place, if they could just get in a boat and row across the Sea of Galilee to some more remote place, maybe they could escape the threats of the crowd or the press of the crowds anyway. So, so they tried that, but the crowd somehow got word of it. And by the time they got to the other side of the lake, or at least to the section they were going, the crowds had uh, hurried up and somehow gotten to the place where he was and they met him there. And it, it was full of all kinds of hurting people and sick people and desperate souls. And, and there they were, just pressing on them. And the, the text says in verse 14 that Jesus looked at them, and like so many times, he had compassion. He just couldn't ignore them. He, 
He saw their needs, and even though he had these deep needs inside him, he felt like he needed to help them, and so he healed them, and he taught them, and eventually he even fed them. It, it got late in the day, and the disciples said, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to feed these folks tonight. They can't find any place to, to eat. They'd gone out, and they were in some remote place, because that's what Jesus was trying to do, was to get away from the, the people, so there weren't any 7-Elevens or UDFs or anything like that around the corner. There was nothing, nothing to be able to feed them. So the, so the disciples said, let's just send them back to their villages. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Uh, you give them something. Well, for some reason, the disciples had kind of taken a survey so far. They checked and they found out that there was one kid in the crowd that had the five loaves and the two fish. You, you know, most of you, that story. And Jesus got the word and he says, okay, bring him to me. And he set all the huge crowd down in in little sections, and he blessed this food, and he started breaking it and putting it into baskets, and he broke it again and again and again and again and again and again. It was one of those, one of those wide-eyed moments when, when, you know, watching something like that, you must have thought, how do you do that? I mean, this is impossible. It was a miracle, and he fed over 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. I mean, it was one of those one of those really highlight moments. Then the crowd went home. Now, in the midst of it all, it was a time when Jesus probably finally thought to himself, okay, I, I can get away now. I can have some time for myself. And so he told the disciples to get in a boat, not with him, but just with them and to go away because he was going to go up into the hills and have some private time. I mean, he loved them, but sometimes he needed just himself and God in the moment. And so he slipped off and they rowed away in the boat. And at night, he was finally alone and the disciples were out on the lake when it says that the waves and the wind began to rise. So much so that some of these guys who were seasoned sailors weren't really sure whether they were gonna even survive. It was that, that crazy. And it was about three hours before dawn, the text tells us, when the disciples see this shadowy figure coming out towards them upon the water. Now, if you're out in the middle of a boat in a crazy, twisted moment, and you see some shadowy figure coming to you on the water, what do you do? Well, you probably don't say, come on, <laughs> you're, you're afraid. Afraid, it says they were just terrified by it all. But it was Jesus. He had, he had somehow known that they were in trouble, and he walked out on the water to get them. And so he yells out to them over the water, Take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. And no sooner had the echo of his voice gotten to the ears of Peter, one of those 12 disciples, then he shouted back out to him, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you in the water. And Jesus said, come. Now, I've I got to stop the story. I'll have to do that a few times here. I've got to stop the story right here. You know, we read these stories and we think, that's cool. You know, but I've got to think about this for a minute. Now, feeding those 5,000 was remarkable. But walking on water, I mean, that, that moves at another step. Um, you know, a good mom can stretch a meal to a lot of people. Maybe not 5,000, but I mean, that's a little, a little easier for me to comprehend. I, it's still way out there, but it's a little easier to comprehend than to somebody walking on the water. 
This story is not just getting more interesting, it's getting more impossible. And the wild audacity of asking on Peter's part to go out on the water makes it even a little crazier. Unless you know something about Peter. You know, he, he, he was always that kind of guy, wasn't he? I mean, he, he would always talk before he would think. Uh, he would say before he would do. His brain was not always fully engaged when he opened his mouth. I don't know, maybe it was here, but I'm sure the 11 in the boat were thinking to themselves as Peter shouted out, oh no, not again, Peter, please, 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 please don't, don't do that. If you're not concerned about yourself, be concerned about us. You are an awkward big guy, and when you put your leg over the side of this boat and jump out on that water, not only are you going to drown, but you're probably going to drown us too. This was a recklessly abandoning moment. But God said, or Jesus said, come. And it says that he stepped out onto, not into, but onto the water. At least for a few amazing steps until he began to feel the strong gust of the wind on his face and the water splashing up on his feet. And gravity and perhaps a little bit of doubt began to take hold, and he began to sink. And all he could say was, Lord, save me. Although he probably said it a lot louder than that. <laughs> and it says that immediately Jesus reached out, grabbed his hand, and pulled him up out of the water. And in helping him back into the boat, he says to Peter, You of little faith, why do you doubt? And as soon as they were back in the boat, the wind and the waves all died down. And the disciples, who had been watching it all, surely with their mouths wide open, it says, bowed down to worship Jesus and said, Surely you are the Son of God. And the story ends. But what did it mean for them? What, how, when they look back on that, did it affect the rest of their lives? Which leads me back to that that. That first question, uh, has there ever been anything that you've done in your life, not done in your life, or said, or acted upon, that you look back upon and think, I wish things had gone different then? Or let me ask you this way, if you had been Peter, and you had been in that boat, in that crazy moment, would you have been the crazy person who would have said, hey God, hey, hey Jesus, invite me out onto the water with you? There are a lot of us, and I would have to probably include myself, who, who like to weigh things carefully. Any of you that way? Any of you like to think through things before you decide what you're going to do? Are you there? Measure before you cut. I mean, all those kinds of good sort of things. Weigh the odds. Look at the weather report. Uh, just, just think about it before you leap. Wouldn't it have made more sense in kind of a logical way to have waited this storm out inside the boat? Now, surely the boat would be the safer of the places to be in the middle of a storm. Just think of the logic of it. We read these stories and we think, sure, I'd have jumped out of the boat. Would you? Or would you have hung on a little bit tighter to the rails on the side of the boat? Would you have just kind of dug in your fingernails into that, to that wood? Because... Staying in a boat is a lot safer than getting out on water. At least the 11 who were in the boat and stayed behind must have thought of that. 
And to be honest, the majority of us, I would say, are boat people, aren't we? we we're boat people. We, we like the boat. We, we come to the boat every Sunday. We, we live in the boat. We stay with people who are like us in the boat. I mean, we like the boat. We don't, we don't like taking risks. If it's not about comfort, it's about security. And that means staying inside the boat. Now, there are always some crazies, and I've been here long enough to know that you've got, well, I won't point anybody out, but you've got, you've got some people here, maybe who would be high risk. You know who those are. We'll take names after this service. Um, but extremes may be good for an adrenaline rush, but for most of us, we just... We prefer safe. Back in 2001, I was down in a church in Anderson Township, Parkside. Uh, Cheryl will remember this moment. We were, we were about to launch this major capital stewardship program. We needed to raise about 2 or $3 million to be able to expand the church building. It's a long story, but we were trying missionally to do some remarkable things in the community. It was really a great time of opportunity. And... Uh, the whole thing was supposed to be announced to a select kind of first group, a first communication group of the congregation on September the 11th. Uh, you probably remember what happened on September the 11th, 2001. I was driving to church that morning. I heard on the news that a plane had flown into one of the towers, the World Trade Center towers. And I, you know, it seemed, seemed kind of weird to me, but I didn't think too much about it, you know, private plane got lost or something, got to, to the church office, went in the conference room, turned on the TV, and we all watched that, and we saw the second plane crash into the tower. And um, we all knew, hey, this is, this is something more than just some isolated accident along the way. And then there was news about plane clash, crashing in the Pentagon, then finally the one out in, in Pennsylvania, and, and how we later learned that there were some passengers that caused that plane to, to crash because they'd, they'd taken into their own hands the, the, the opportunity to be able to shut that whole thing down, maybe would have taken out the White House. And I, I have to admit, as I was uh, sitting there and going through that, that moment, um, there were, there were two thoughts that were going across my mind, and one of them was reasonable, and one of them was maybe a little bit crazy, but one was I wasn't sure what was going to happen to us as a nation because I think a lot of us, if you remember those times, were probably thinking, well, okay, we're going to go to war. Um, what, what's going to happen? Who's behind all this? But selfishly, there was another thought that came to my mind. It was like, what's going to happen to this campaign? Now, that was a bad thing to be thinking about maybe, but that was a big thing for what was going on for us. And we had this, we had this very tight timeline because we had, we'd been trying to do what we were going to do, but if you've ever done a campaign like that, the calendar, it matters when you can start something and stop something. And we were already committed to, it was kind of crazy, we were committed to do the construction, but we didn't have the money yet. And so we, were, we, we had faith that we could, we, could, we could raise the money. So in the days that followed, in the immediate days, we had to decide, uh, decide what to do. And we thought as leaders and prayed about it a lot. And it probably could have made sense to stay in the boat. It was, it was just one of those times where when you have that much uncertainty, there was just an awful lot of risk. And we, we decided after a while that we had 
we had really wrestled with what we were going to do for a long time, and we felt like God was in it, and we, we, we knew that it was critical for us to be able to expand our missional impact on the community, so we decided to take the risk to, to get it out of the boat. Uh, to fail, we felt, was probably even worse than taking the risk, so with a full head of faith, we just said, let's do it. And I'm convinced that for our church, it became one of the most defining moments of our history. Uh, there were a lot of things that happened over the course of time there that were defining. But this one, this one became defining for us because it was a choice to do something dangerous versus clinging to something that seemed to be safe. It even affected we hadn't figured out exactly what we were going to call the campaign. It affected what we were going to do. And we ended up calling it Our Time, Our Faith. And we put a video together, and the opening scenes of the video were the towers in New York City aflame. Uh, looked like that. Um, and we, we, we recognized the, the challenge that was in the room and said, wow, these are, these are, these are tough times. But we believe. We believe that God wants us to do this and this is what we want to do. And ultimately, I think what it allowed our people to do was even more than what they imagined. It was a tremendously successful thing for us. Now, I don't know what would have happened if, we'd, if the whole nation had fallen apart, but sometimes you have to do what doesn't seem to make sense if you feel like God is the one who is inviting you into that risky moment. A few years ago, John Ortberg wrote a book that has a, it's a great book, but it has this amazing title. It says, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. I hope that will kind of set in your memory. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. The water, though, is a very dangerous place. Now, I don't think that God is calling us, that Christ is calling us to act and walk foolishly. I don't think he's saying, church, do stupid stuff all the time, and I'll try to get you out of what you're doing. Now, Amy Hunter uh, writes about a classmate that she had back when she was in a Christian college, an evangelical Christian college, who repeatedly defined faith in this way. She says she defined faith as stepping out of airplanes knowing that God will catch you. And uh, Amy says that her response to her friend's strange definition was that surely God had better things to do than to catch folks stupid enough to step out of airplanes. I'm with Amy on that one. I mean, I, I don't think God calls us to do foolish things. But I'm drawn to Peter in this particular story, and particularly to something, a keen observation that Ortberg makes about his challenge. We've already seen that one good reason to step over the side is, is if you want to walk on water, you get out of the boat. But to this, Ortberg adds even something else. He says... The water is where Jesus is. The water may be dark, wet, and dangerous. But Jesus is not in the boat. Did you hear that? Jesus is not, at least at that moment, he is not in the boat. Oh, it's true, you may, you may sink, but if you don't get out of the boat, you will most certainly never walk on water. Maybe they wouldn't have died. 
Peter wouldn't have experienced here's a miracle. I, I think about through the stories of the Bible, and there were time after time when, when God invited people, when he called them to do things that didn't make an awful lot of sense, and they did it, and it changed their lives. I think about Abraham. He was asked to leave uh, a well-placed station that he had in his country to leave everything behind, his, his prosperity, his home, his, his possessions, at least what he couldn't carry with him, and to go to a place that he'd never seen that he only had a promise of, and that he really never got to see in a, in a real way in his life as a possession. He, he came when God invited him to come. Or Moses, standing before the Red Sea, or other moments in his life, but before the Red Sea, when God says, I want you to walk through it. Seriously? I got, I got Pharaoh's armies coming behind, that's bad, but I got this sea in front of me, and God somehow offers him an opportunity to walk through on dry water. Abraham, Moses, I could give you all kinds of examples. Peter, they're, they're asked to come into some dangerous place. But when you get to glory, if you could have a conversation with Abraham or Moses or Peter, and you ask them, if they had to do over again in their lives, would they have done it differently? No way. No way. Because it changed everything for them. It, it brought great opportunity for them. Henrietta Mears as a pioneer, was a pioneer in the field of Christian education. She taught especially college-age young people for decades. And she influenced generations of Christian leaders among uh, people like Billy Graham and Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade that we call, is called Crew today. And at the end of her remarkable life, as she was nearing death, someone asked her, Miss Mears, if you had it to do all over again, would you do anything differently? And she said, if I had it to do over again, I would have trusted Christ more. Nobody, nobody ever dies um, regretting trusting Christ. The only regret we probably have, especially when we see him in glory, is why didn't I trust him more? A sopping, wet Peter still spitting up seawater after finally getting safely back in the boat. Shirley must have shot a glance over to Jesus and exchanged a satisfying smile. Because if only for a brief moment, even the briefest of moments, Peter walked on water. So, what have you done in your life that you look back on right now and think, wow, I didn't get very far, but, but what I did accomplish and what, what I did experience was wow, way out of the box. We needed, need to notice that in this exchange between Peter and Jesus, though, that Jesus said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What's real faith look like? I mean, what is it that causes us to be able to get more than a couple steps out of the boat. And what does it mean to have a little faith here? It's possible to read the story about Peter's walking on water and make the success all about Peter too much more than about Jesus. And a lot of times that, that's, that's the case. Some of us actually have too much confidence in ourselves. We, we, we feel like we're water walkers right now. You know, I, I can do pretty much anything. And that becomes the downfall. And Maybe that was part of the problem for the disciples, uh, especially for someone who had an attitude like Peter who felt like maybe it was too much about them. There was a time later 
when a man brought a troubled son to Jesus, and he said, this is over Matthew 17, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. They, they had evidently, they, the disciples had possessed the ability that God had given them through Christ to heal people. And perhaps they'd gotten kind of, you, you ever done something that's pretty good and you think, ha, ah, I'm, I'm pretty hot stuff, you know, I'm, 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 I'm up there, you know, and so you keep trying and you, you build more and more confidence. Uh, after all, hadn't they been the ones that had helped pass out the loaves and the fishes as if they had done the multiplying, but hey, they probably got the pats on the backs and the thanks for all that they had done. But in this case, this father with his troubled son said they'd failed. And Jesus healed the boy, but not before he lamented the situation. And he said these words, oh, unbelieving generation. Now, the boy's father, even in his plea to Jesus for help, had said, if, if you can do anything. And Jesus shot back, if, I think he may have said it that way, if I can do anything. Then he says, everything is possible for him who believes. That's in Mark's account of the story over in Mark 9. Even walking on water, even raising, uh, healing a tortured son. Later, while Jesus was alone uh, with the disciples after the healing of this boy, they said to him, why couldn't we bring about this healing? And Jesus said, because you have so little faith. Same thing. Same, same, same phrase that he used uh, about Peter. There's that faith thing again. A.W. Tozer once said, God is looking for those through whom he can do the impossible. But what a pity that we plan only the things that we can do by ourselves. Whew. Or Henry Blackaby, who wrote uh, some really interesting books. I don't know if you've read any of, of his stuff. But he says, I've come to the place in my life if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something that I know I can handle, I know it's probably not from God. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized. Our, God, our God's too small. That's kind of what, he, what he's saying. Which all leads to the question, is it about the size of the winds and the size of the waves or about the size of our God? It's not about us. It's not about how much, how much ability I have. It's about how much I believe that God has the ability, that Christ has the ability to rescue me or empower me to do whatever needs to be done. The choice of words by Jesus to challenge Peter during his rescue was not, why were you afraid, but why did you doubt? The instinct in our lives, in situations of risk, is to be uncertain as to how we can get through it. Parker Palmer uh, was a founder of a place called the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, and he, he tells an outward bound repelling story. Uh, anybody ever repelled in here down the side of a, you done? Okay, so you know some, you'll know something about that. I've never done that. I, I, I've done it like in a, a gym, but not, not on a mountain. But he says, one of the instructors backed me up to the edge of a cliff about 110 feet above solid ground. And he tied a very thin rope to my waist. And he told me to start repelling off the cliff. Do what? <laughs> he asked. Just go, the instructor explained. So he immediately, he, 
He started down, but he slammed into a ledge about four feet below him uh, down the cliff with this bone-jarring, brain-jarring force. And the instructor said to him, well, you've not quite got it yet. And uh, Parker said, well, right, right. So, So what am I supposed to do? And he said, the only thing for you to do is this, is to lean back as far as you can, and you get your body at a right angle actually to the cliff so that the weight is on your feet. It's counterintuitive, he says, but it's the only way you're going to be able to get down. And he says to himself, as he gets ready to take his next step, well, that can't be. You know, it's kind of like we always think through things through, through don't we? That, that, that can't be. And so he, he tries it again. He does exactly the same thing he did before. And boom, he, he crashes into the, to the ledge once more. <laughs> the instructor says, you still don't have it, shouting down over the edge. He says, okay, tell me one more time. What am I supposed to do? And this is what he said. Lean way back and take the next step. And the next step was a very big one, he said, but he took it, and wonder of wonders, it worked. He leaned back into empty space, his eyes fixed up on heavens when he was at the right angle, and he pushed himself away, slowly with more and more confidence as he repelled his way down that 110-foot cliff. Every time we trust... Every time we put our eyes on God, every time we lean back away from ourselves, sometimes counterintuitively to what would get us to a safe place, we get to where God is trying to lead us. And our God gets bigger and our confidence grows stronger with each move. We lean into God and away from our obstacle. Not only... I don't think Jesus was scolding Peter as he pulled him out of the water as if he was wishing that his faith could have been, uh, as, I don't think he was scolding him so much as he was wishing that his faith could have been stronger in the one who was doing the calling. We have too much of a self-made, self-confident world. And I, I have to ask myself the question for you and for me anytime I'm around, how, how big is the vision of this church? How God-sized is your faith? How much do you find yourself thinking to yourself, uh, we can never do that. that? That's really impossible. What kind of adventures might you miss simply because you don't lean into God? Because your God is too small. In the midst of that calling, when they, when they saw Jesus all out there, Jesus said, it's me. And it's interesting his choice of words. It's it, in, in, in the, the text, the original text, it, it just, the, the word that he uses there is I am, I am. Now it's the name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. It's the name that Moses got as the insider, the intimate name for God. I am is the one that is calling you. Have faith, believe, it's me. When Peter finally ended up in the boat, they found the rest of the disciples who'd been watching it all on their knees having church because they had witnessed something that, quite frankly, made them realize that Jesus was no ordinary man. Now, they knew that, but they realized that in a much deeper way than before. And in reverent awe, everybody that was there 
maybe Peter joining them real quickly saying, surely you are the son of God. There's a little book I read a long time ago by Ann Ortland. It's just a little, a little tiny book. It's called Up With Worship. And she talked about when she grew up that they used to play worship when she was a kid. You ever play church when you were little? I mean, I buried a lot of goldfish and stuff. My sisters and I, we'd have church in the, in the backyard. But she said they would set up chairs in rows and they would do all that. And they would fight over who was going to be the preacher and who was going to lead the music and, you know, all those kind of upfront rows. And she said the aggressive kids all the time got the upfront stuff. And those that were a little more timid would have to sit in the chairs, and they would have to be entertained by those that were up front. Occasionally, she said, if the upfront person was especially mesmerizing, kind of a crowd swayer, um, like the girl in one of their services, she said, who once stood up and said, boo, I'm the Holy Ghost. <laughs> she kind of caught, caught their attention. Um, but in general, she said, the upfronters would do okay for a while, but then the people in the chairs would start to lose their interest, and and uh, their minds would drift away, and they would think about the playground or what they wanted to do. Like some of you may be doing right now. You know, okay, he's, he, he's, I'm, I'm getting ready to land it real quickly here. But she says, Ortland says, a whole generation of them grew up. And she says a lot of them hadn't changed too much. Every Sunday, they still play church, and they line up in rows for the entertainment. And if it's pretty good, the church may grow, but if it's not... Eventually, they drift off to play something else like yachting or wife swapping. Not often, she says, do churchgoers find themselves in the presence. But when they do, all is changed. They are moved to move. They repent. They weep. They rejoice. When God is present in power, she said, there is something about that experience that just compels us to respond, that calls us to worship. And she closes with this. If you ever find yourself in this kind of church where God is obviously present, you will know that this is what you were made for. And you will never be satisfied to play church again. Now you, you have to decide as a people, and you, maybe the maybe the verdict's out. Maybe you maybe you've got some things going through your mind that you're thinking, okay, what what's going to happen here? What's this place going to be like? I I challenge you this morning to remember this story, to think about the fact that it's not about you, but it's about God. And if God is present here, and if He is a part of what you are doing and being as a church. You won't have to ask people to come here. They will ask how to get here from people who realize that there is something significant happening in this place. So let me go back to that question that I asked you right at the very beginning. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've had an opportunity to do something or to say something or to act in some way, but you didn't? When Jesus God in some way has seemed to speak into your life come but you didn't because you didn't want to leave something that felt safe even if it was boring you, you didn't take that breath like Peter did that gasping breath of, of maybe I could do this and say invite me out into this crazy moment with you. 
It wasn't a long and perfect walk, but you know, when you ask Peter someday whether he regrets what he did, even though he failed, you think he's going to say, if I had it to do over again, I would have stayed in the boat? What are you going to do to trust God in the new year? What are you going to do that's going to that's going to get you out of the boat. Are you going to walk on water? Maybe. It just all depends upon how much you, we, believe. Let me pray for you. God, you know that there uh, are surely lots of thoughts and feelings coursing around through our hearts and heads here in this room today. And I pray that having read this story and listened and watched what happened in Peter's life might uh, spark something in our lives that we might believe more deeply, that we might trust more strongly. God, I thank you for the future that you dream of for us. And I pray that somehow that future won't be blocked by our sense of comfort or complacency or whatever it is that keeps us from, from not just being boat people. I pray for this place. I pray for this church. I pray for every life in this room. Help everyone here have the faith to believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.